Amen. Matthew chapter 28 this morning is our text as we go together through the Gospel of Matthew once again, picking up where we left off before the uh, holidays. Matthew chapter 28. Make it as secure as you can. Those were the words of Pilate, the Roman governor, to the guards which he posted at the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. I just love those words. Make it as secure as you can. Uh, They had more in them than that man knew, right? And they did. They made it as secure as they could. They put a huge stone in front of that entrance. They sealed the tomb with the power of the authority of Rome behind it. They set a an armed guard taking shifts around the clock for until the third day. And yet, he who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> the Lord holds them in derision. So you think death will imprison the one who is life itself? You think that mere men will seal up the Almighty God? You think that the conspiracies of evil powers are any match for the King of kings and Lord of lords? The Lord speaks and thunders from heaven, Behold, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. And death could not keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. And this is Matthew's record of the resurrection to bodily, eternal life of Jesus, the God-man. Matthew, beginning in chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What is uh, an amazing thing, I think, about these eyewitnesses is that the eyewitnesses described in these verses 
bore testimony to both the life and the death and the burial and now also the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their lives, no doubt, were never the same. Who could forget that day? It is as if uh, their whole lives entered um, a new stage, almost like being born again themselves. This tremendous holy day. The Bible uh, writer Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives the record to us of who it was that was the uh, testimony that were the eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord. And he lists a couple of these women. Uh, one, he lists Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, of course, was one of Jesus you would have to say one of his most devoted followers. She who was forgiven much, loved him much. A woman who had many evil spirits cast out of her and became a disciple of Jesus Christ. She is one of these women. Matthew also says that there is another Mary who is with her. Um, this is Mary, the mother of the disciple called James the Less. Um, and his brother Joseph, or Joseph. So there's that Mary, along with Mary Magdalene, who was one of these eyewitnesses. Um, when you begin to compare the gospel accounts, you find that there were other women besides these two along with them. Um, maybe these two, Matthew highlights, because they were the most uh, prominent or the most vocal in their testimony or whatever. Uh, but Mark also records that there was another woman uh, with them whose name was uh, Salome. Uh, or Salome, uh, she was the wife of Zebedee and the father, uh, the, the the mother of uh, James and John, as you know, uh, two of the disciples. And then Luke also records that there was a woman whose name was Joanna, about whom we know less, but she was also a disciple of Jesus Christ and uh, committed to supporting him and the apostles um, financially during their ministry. Uh, a harmony of the Gospels also seems to indicate that there was probably at least one other woman, perhaps other women as well, uh, along with this company uh, that was gathering at the tomb. Um, and let me just stop here and say something about the, um, the differences in the Gospels as you read Matthew, and especially as you compare it with John or some of the other um, Gospels. You begin to see some things that are different, and I find those differences actually both intriguing and encouraging. Um, and what is encouraging is that the differences are the kinds of differences that they are. On the one hand, the differences are of such significance that I don't see how you could reasonably charge the authors of the Gospels with some kind of collusion as if we all have to get our story straight. Everybody, here's the, here's the party line that we're going to take. These are independent accounts uh, that all together bear a broad eyewitness testimony uh, to the facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and I think the differences and the fact that they're not just... They're not... They're not uh, a uh, uh, little tiny details, but they're they're significant enough to help us to understand that 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 uh, this is no 
mere work of a, of a group getting together to uh, foist off a story on unsuspecting people. But on the other hand, the differences are not so significant that I think a reasonable person uh, cannot see how they could fit together. Uh, I think it's only the most um, committed to unbelief who uh, purport that there is no way to harmonize the events as they're recorded different ways in the different Gospels. So I hope that when you come across these so-called contradictions in the Gospels, that, that you won't be afraid to investigate them, for one thing. That don't feel like that's going to somehow be a wrong thing or that it's going to be against your faith. There are um, perfectly perfectly reasonable explanations. And I fit, in fact, I think these differences should be a strong testimony to you of the gospel's authenticity. So embrace them, uh, examine them. And uh, so we won't do a, a lot of that today, but I want to give you a, a glimpse of how I think some of these things fit together. I think it's probable that the women who are listed here and then in the other gospels, that the women came from various places in the city um, where they were staying. Remember, of course, they're probably also a little bit skittish about all being together um, at this point, but they're coming from various places, some traveling together, others separately, who have agreed to meet up at the tomb. They arrive at the tomb at slightly different times. This accounts for the fact that some of the Gospels say it was a little before uh, the sun came up, or as after the sun came up, and and so the people, these women are arriving there. Some of them heard the angel's message at the tomb, as we read in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, others, uh, Mary Magdalene in particular, I think, saw the empty tomb before the angels uh, came to give the message. She ran off and comes back later, and and of course is met by our Lord and so forth. Um, what is most compelling, though? to me about all of these testimonies is the continuity of their testimony. The fact that, and we've already seen this right in the Gospel of Matthew, that he identifies these as some of the same women who were first of all present during the ministry of our Lord Jesus up in Galilee. They traveled with him in various places in Galilee at different times, ministering to him and the other apostles. They saw his miracles, they heard his teaching, they watched his life. These same women, named women, Matthew says, stood at a distance observing the crucifixion of our Lord. They watched him die. The same women also, named women, also stood in the garden watching his body being prepared for burial and they saw where he was laid, how he was laid out there in that tomb. And now they are, in fact, the first on the scene on this third day. And I think that is incredibly significant. That continuity of testimony, if you think about it, that means that the women were not mistaken as to whether Jesus actually died These are the same women who watched him die. These are the same women who watched the Romans thrust the spear into his side. They watched him breathe his last and commit his spirit into the hands of his father. 
It also means that these women were not misguided as to which tomb was the tomb of our Lord. They got lost in the dark and they went to the wrong place. No, these are the women who were eyewitnesses to the burial just a couple of days earlier. And it also means these women were not unfamiliar, not easily tricked by some imposter claiming to be the resurrected Jesus. These women spent time with him for, for, for months or perhaps years by now. They had walked and talked with this Jesus who now uh, was alive from the tomb and would appear to them and would appear to the many disciples. Friends, in the providence of God, this continuity of testimony is sovereignly arranged and preserved for the encouragement of our faith. That we can rest on the fact that God sovereignly ordained all of this so that we would have competent eyewitness testimonies. Our faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's grounded in historical realities that are born witness to by those whom God has chosen to give us this testimony. So, I hope that this will be an encouragement to your faith. One of the other things to note here in the beginning of this uh, account is that not only Matthew, but in fact every single gospel writer explicitly records the fact that our Lord was raised on, quote, the first day of the week. This is, of course, the third day that Jesus had spoken about that predicted that he would rise on the third day. Um, on the Jewish custom to count any part of a day as a day, in all probability, Jesus was buried on Friday. This would be before Sabbath began at sundown. There's some disagreements. Some people think he was buried on Thursday or crucified on Thursday. But in probability, he was buried on Friday before sundown. He was buried, of course, Sabbath begins on the sundown. Now, that's a new day. He was in the tomb on the, the Sabbath, that's Saturday. And then he rose from the dead sometime in the first part of the third day, which would have begun at sunset on Saturday evening, this beginning the first day of the week. So the women came to the tomb that first uh, day of the week, that Sunday morning, very early, um, and found the tomb empty. Now, this idea is a part of a broader biblical theology that is rich for us. It's the biblical theological um, theme of rest for the people of God. You know, at the very beginning in creation, what did God do? He worked, right? The Bible says God worked, which elevates for us, by the way, the importance of work, right? God worked for six days, and on the seventh day, He rested. So He rested on the last day of the week, the day after the creation was finished. This, in turn, became the Old Testament Sabbath, right? The day of rest, that Last day of the week was the Old Testament Sabbath. God said, keep the Sabbath holy. Let it be a day for worship, not for work. Right? This is a day for you to put aside all of your worldly endeavors to just be able to remember the, the goodness of God and all that He has made and to worship Him for what He has done. But 
that Sabbath only foreshadowed our perfect rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. A day coming when a new creation would dawn and Christ rose again on the first day of the week. The day that sometimes we call the Christian Sabbath, the New Testament Sabbath, which is the, uh, who, and, and Christ being raised on that first day becomes the firstborn of the new creation. So, rest comes at the end of the first creation, but the new creation grows out of that rest that we have in Christ. And so Christians recognized this dawn of the new era, the era of Christ, the era of uh, rest. And uh, as it was predicted in the Scriptures in Acts chapter 4, Peter says actually that the resurrection was the fulfillment. Pay attention. The resurrection was the fulfillment of Psalm 118 which says this, This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This, Peter says, fulfilled in the resurrection. Christians began to recognize this and to worship on the Lord's day, to be glad in it. Are you glad? I want to ask, are you glad for the Lord's day? Are you? In your heart of hearts, are you glad for the Lord's day. You know, when I think when we live an, long enough in a broken, sinful world and we vex our souls in this sinful world, uh, there is something that wells up within us that says, I cannot wait for rest. And every Lord's day is a foretaste of that rest, an actual experience of that rest, even now breaking into this world, where, where all of your worldly cares can be set aside. Well, you don't have to run hither and thither and do this and do that to make ends meet and to get everything done that you need to do. When you can just set aside a day to worship and enjoy the Lord and rejoice in all of His goodness. I ask you this morning, do you keep the Sabbath day holy? I'm going to tell you, six days are enough. They're enough for you to labor in order to supply your own needs. Trust the Lord on this. He'll make that bread last another day. We just need to rejoice in the Lord on this first day of the week, the day on which our Lord was raised from the dead. Now, some of the women came to this tomb that Lord's Day morning and uh, found a scene that was most extraordinary. Take a look at the way that Matthew describes it. It's just, uh, just mind-boggling how uh, earth, literally earth-shaking this was. That was not a, that was not intended. There was an earthquake, right? There was an angel, a heavenly messenger. The Bible says that his appearance was like lightning, that along with his snow white garments, he must have been just blindingly bright as a, a mere reflection of the gloriousness of heaven. And with an Earthquake, a great earthquake similar to the one that took place three days before uh, at the crucifixion. Another earthquake. With that earthquake, the angel rolled back the stone from the tomb. Why? 
so that everyone could see that Christ had risen. And then, he sat down on the stone, triumphantly as it were. It is done. Christ is raised. Everyone come and see. The invitation is open, as it were. The guards, who were still posted at this time, fell down, the Bible says, in terror, as every single one of us would if we ever saw a real uh, heaven-to-earth angel. They fell down in utter terror, incapacitated, the Bible says, like dead men. Which, uh, you, you can have to help, you can't help but think that the irony wasn't lost on Matthew, that those who were assigned to guard the corpse became like corpses themselves, while the one they guarded was already alive. That the dead were more alive, the dead one, supposedly, was more alive than those who were living. And, of course, from other Gospels, we know that when the women came to the tomb, uh, the angels, the angel that was on the stone had moved. But the tomb remained open, so the women entered. They saw the body missing. They were perplexed. And the angels appeared, not only this angel, but another angel, a second angel appeared both to them inside the tomb or near the tomb. And when they saw the angels, of course, they were terrified, just like the guards, just as terrified. But the angel turned to them and he said something to them that he didn't say to the guards. He said, what? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. I think both the guards and the women reacted the way that any of us would, with great fear and trembling. But it is those who are God's people who are told that they don't have need to fear. I just, uh, there's something here. <laughs> and I think Calvin, John Calvin, makes the pastoral application. He says, certainly it is proper that the majesty of God should strike both terror and fear indiscriminately into the godly as well as the reprobate, that all flesh may be silent before His face. But when the Lord has humbled and subdued His elect, He immediately mitigates their dread that they may not sink under its oppressive influence. And not only so, but by the sweetness of His grace, He heals the wound which He has inflicted. Makes me think of Newton's words, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Amen. I hope you know what it is to hear the Lord say to you in the midst of your deepest conviction and fear of the judgment of God, to hear Him say to you, do not fear. Do not fear. To point you to the Lord Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of God on your behalf so that you might not have anything to fear from a holy God. This is a beautiful thing. The angel says to them, do not fear. He is not here, for He is risen. Just as He said. And of course, He did say it. He said it at least three times, implied it one, one or two more times. We've already seen this in the Gospel of Matthew back in chapter 16 and in chapter 17 and again in chapter 20. Jesus said to them explicitly, the Son of Man must die, well, must be delivered over, must be crucified, die, would be buried, and, and ra be raised again on the third day. 
But of course, uh, you know, I think often we, like them, are fearful, we're anxious, we're perplexed because we have literally forgotten what the Lord has said. Don't you find that in your heart? Just it's it's we've skimmed over his promises so lightly or they've seemed so fantastic to us that the significance of what he has said has hardly registered in our consciousness. And we would do ourselves much good, brothers, sisters, to set our minds on the words of God, to latch onto them, to receive them, to meditate on them and lay them up, treasure them in our hearts like chunks of gold. He is not here, for He is risen, just as He said. And then the, uh, the angel said to the women, Come, see the place where He lay. So what did they see? They already seen the tomb, right? What did they see? John's Gospel tells us explicitly what was to be seen in that tomb. You remember what it was? Grave clothes laid out. I don't know whether they were wrapped or bound as if a body just came out of them. I tend to think the latter because it says in contrast to the grave clothes, the head cloth was purposefully removed to the other side and folded up and put over here. As if somebody sort of set this up purposely to bear testimony. As if the Son of God just came right through those old grave clothes of this former creation and right into the new creation uh, in a resurrected, glorified body. Um, Which, of course, later we read that, remember, the disciples were all present in a room, a locked room, John specifically says, on a couple of occasions, and the Lord appears, right? So perhaps this is exactly what the women saw. And their minds begin to, you know how it is when you, when you sit there and you see something and your begot, mind begins to think of what, what, what has happened? What, what are all the possibilities here? I mean, grave robbing is, is, is nothing uh, uncommon, too uncommon. Uh, you know sometimes they'll dig up graves now and, and somebody discovered this ancient tomb, right? And they get in there and you know somebody does their TV special and we're going to open this, this tomb and we're all going to see something we haven't seen. And, all the, and they open it all up and there's nothing there because grave robbers came by a long time ago, right? So that, of course that happens. But you can just imagine their minds examining the possibilities. Why in the world would any grave robber in his right mind take the time to unwrap the corpse? Why would he want the corpse? And why would he take the corpse? Why would he leave the grave clothes? Why would he leave them the way that they are? Why would he fold up the face covering and place it in a place by itself, in a separate place, as if purposeful? Astounding as it may be, resurrection was the most rational explanation for what they saw. 
And John explicitly says that is that's exactly what convinced him of the resurrection. It wasn't the God, it wasn't uh, the prophecies. Now those he 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 recognized later. He saw this is what the scripture is promised all along. And of course, the, 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 the statements of our Lord about His resurrection were the furthest thing from the minds of these people. They had forgotten those things. But now they see this tomb. Come see where He lay. See the testimony that is before you. But not only were these women eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and the grave clothes and the angels, but they were given a message by the angel, a message to deliver. And you see that beginning in verse 7. In verse 7, the angel tells them, go quickly and tell his disciples two things. One, that he is risen from the dead. And two, behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And so off the women ran, still trembling, but full of joy. But before they can get very far down that path, back into the city, Jesus Himself stood before them and greeted them. Can you imagine the goosebumps that ran up and down their spine and the joy and the fear and the wonder and the awe and the confusion that must have come over them all in waves as they stood there for who knows how long. A moment, two, a minute. And then they fell on their feet. They held on to Him. And the Bible says that they worshipped Him. They worshipped Him. I think there's at least two things that we ought to take note of with regard to this falling at holding on to His feet and worshipping Him. The first is that this Jesus standing before them was a Jesus of flesh and blood. He's a Jesus you could hold on to. He's a Jesus with a body. A resurrected, glorified body, yet a, um, a, a body. He's no ghost. He's no spirit. He's no figment of their imaginations. Secondly, I think this also demonstrates not only that He's flesh and blood, but that He's God. Himself in human flesh. For they fall at their feet and they worship Him. And He does not rebuke them any more than He rebukes Thomas, who when He appeared later to Thomas, who cried out, My Lord and my God. For that's who He was. In verse 10, Jesus gives to these women the same charge that the angels gave to them. Look at it again, because this is repeated here. So this is emphasized in Matthew's text. Verse 10, Jesus tells them the same thing. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. 
for there they will see me. And of course, Jesus was, Jesus was better than his word, graciously appearing to them even several times in Jerusalem before they went to Galilee. But it's Galilee. You see how it's emphasized both in verse 7 and in verse 10, where it's explicitly recorded as part of the commission, part of the message that these women were to bear to the disciples. Tell them, Christ is risen, and in Galilee you will see him. This place, Galilee, is where Christ will ultimately reveal himself and his purposes to his disciples. What is the significance of this repeated emphasis on Galilee? Well, of course, on the one hand, Galilee is where they were from, where they were first called by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, some of them were fishing on the shores of the lake there, um, and the Lord walked by them and said, Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. This is where they were first commissioned, and now... A lot's happened since then, right? A lot's happened in the last few days. Where have the disciples been while the women have been bearing witness to his crucifixion and to his burial and now to his resurrection? Remember that they ran for their lives, the Bible says. They abandoned him. They have failed in their faith. And now he's calling them back to where he first called them. It's as if... It's as if here's a new start for them, right? Here's, here, I'm going to call you back to the place where I first commissioned you. And it is there that their commission will be not only renewed, but also enlarged. And I just have to stop it's to say that it is so like our gracious Lord to come and affirm us again, to confirm us in the faith again, to renew us, to forgive us and restore us after we have fallen, to commission us again, to affirm again our calling after we have failed Him. Haven't you experienced that? Hasn't every single Christian experienced the graciousness of the Savior to revive you after you have fallen away? to call you back to Himself, to give you, as it were, a new start. But I think even more than just simply a renewal, this call to Galilee is an expansion. And this, is, I think, is the real significance of the Galilee, as it's called, that region in the far north. It's the farthest geographical point in Israel. Basically, it's as far as you can go and still be in the land of God. It's on the borders, the outskirts, the frontier of, uh, of Israel. It is the gateway to all of the nations, all of the Gentiles. In fact, Israel, if you know kind of the geography, it's bordered. Of course, on the west, you've got the sea. And on the east and on the south, you've got deserts. Basically, nobody goes through the deserts unless you're just, you know, you really, really have to get through there. There's a, there's a little path through the desert in the south, and that's pretty much it. But mostly, if you have contact, if the people of Israel have contact with the nations of the world, 
with the, with the, with the far-flung peoples of the planet. It came from the north. It came from the north. People would come uh, through down through the Galilee and make their way into, um, into Israel. And now in Galilee, on the Jewish frontier, is where Christ commands them to go. It's where He will reveal His purpose to constantly push the boundaries of where the Gospel has penetrated. We saw this. I don't you just take my word for it. Remember what we saw back in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew 4, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says that Jesus withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory, the old Jewish territories of Zebulun and Naphtali. Remember the tribes, that's where they were. This is the, this is the Galilee. So that all, Jesus did this. He, he, he centered his ministry in Galilee. Why? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And now Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Who were those dwelling in darkness, friends? There's all of those nations, right? Who did not have the Word of God, who did not have the promises, who did not have the covenants who did not have the Word from God to point them to the Savior. Those people now who have sat in darkness, those people that that are just beyond Galilee of the nations, those people have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region region and shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. Matthew says that's the significance of Galilee. He points it out. It's a prophetic significance. So far, Jesus' ministry has been primarily confined to the, quote, lost sheep of the house of Israel. But remember that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 49.6, the Lord said, it is too light a thing that my Messiah, that you, my Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And it is from Galilee where Christ will commission them to go out and make disciples of what? All nations. This is where it happens. This is the frontier. Now, Jesus said, if you want to see me, go to Galilee. And I want to, I want to ask, do we understand that to catch a, a complete vision of the Messiah, that... Uh, we need to have this same mindset that they had, that they would have. Of course, the disciples would technically see Jesus, see the risen Christ, even in Jerusalem. He would appear to them in the upper room, right? But Galilee, 
was where they would see what he was really all about. They would see his vision, his purpose, his calling upon them. It was on the gospel frontier where they would catch a vision of the light of the world, the light of the nations. This is who he is. Open your eyes and see. This is what it means to be the resurrected Christ. Here's what the Scriptures teach, that to see Christ in all of His resurrected glory is to see Him worshipped by all of the nations of the world. There is a correlation, a cause and effect kind of correlation between the resurrection of Christ the obedience of Christ issuing in His resurrection and the global gathering in of a people for Himself from all of the tribes of the earth. There is a correlation. I'll I'll tell you, back in the second psalm, that wonderful psalm that's quoted so many times in the New Testament, we see this very thing. The Bible says in Psalm 2 that Yahweh God is, is speaking to His resurrected Son, and He says to His resurrected Son, we know that because of the way the apostles preach, by the way, the, Yahweh says to His resurrected Son, ask Me, and I will give you the nations to be your inheritance. This was Christ's reward, His inheritance for His perfect obedience issuing in His death, vindicated by the resurrection of His body from the tomb. It was a people from every tribe and nation of the earth to be His, to be His kingdom, a global glory. That is the glory of the resurrected Christ. You see the same thing in several places, including Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, John sees a vision of a lamb as though it had been slain, and yet he sees that slain lamb alive, standing, right? And then all of heaven sings out, worthy are you to this lamb to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This resurrected lamb, is given a people from all of the tribes and nations of the earth. Do we yet have a vision of the global glory of the resurrected Christ? Do we pray for His glory? Earnestly pray. Earnestly pray for the sake of His resurrection glory that peoples from all over the world would be given to Him. That those whom He ransomed would come to Him. That they would be a part of His people, His kingdom. Do we give sacrificially? Do we give of our means sacrificially for the global glory of the resurrected Christ? Do you see Him You want to see Him, you got to go to Galilee. That's the frontier. That's where you really see what He's all about. 
we give with that kind of vision for the Lord's glory in our minds, I'll tell you, that'll, that'll motivate you. Uh, that'll motivate you as deeply as anything else. Are you willing to go to the nations of the earth or to send your best so that the, the world may see the glory of the resurrected Christ? When will we truly see and feel that it is too light a thing for Him to be worshipped only where He is worshipped right now? When will we crave for Him to have the worship that He deserves that is rightly due to Him as the perfect, obedient man who was resurrected and vindicated in His obedience? When will we feel that desire most keenly? I pray that in this text that our eyes are somewhat open more opened that our priorities are reshaped and that our prayers are enlivened until we see the global glory of the resurrected Christ emanating out from the Galilee of the nations to all of the ends of the earth. Would you pray, Heavenly Father, thank You for this text and the glory of it, Lord, the encouragement of it. We worship and serve Your beloved Son, the Son of God and Son of Man, the resurrected Christ, and we pray earnestly that people from every tribe and language on the face of the earth would worship and serve Him with hearts full of love and amazement, and joy, and conviction. Lord, send out Your Spirit to draw Christ's people to Himself, that He may have the inheritance for which He died. We pray this in His holy name. Amen.